0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: We've located three underground pockets of carbon dioxide here, here, and here. Now our drilling phases can release enough of the gas to form an envelope which should temporarily hold in the heat of the sun. We spend years, decades, trying to avoid anything that would lead to a greenhouse effect. And now here we are about to create one on purpose. Less than 20% of your normal sunlight is getting through that dust, Doctor. If we
2: can hold enough heat in with the CO2, that should give the planet time to mend itself.
3: Morning, London. It is Thursday. March the 20th, 2008, I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing, Just Right. Fade
1: into
0: colour, colour into black and white, under the clothes, everything will be all-
3: Welcome to the show today. We'll be talking about landlord licensing, jobs, labor, free trade, unions, and what's going on with the economy. Fifth anniversary of the Iraq invasion just passed, I believe it was yesterday or today, I'm not even sure, but uh, war protesters were out, something I want to comment on. But first, to begin the show off, I want to talk about, again, one of my favorite recurring themes, global warming. 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join in. And I also want to remind you just once more that we do have a website set up uh, specifically for the show, uh, www.justrightmedia.org, where you can see an archive of all the shows right back to the first one. And I'd like to announce today for the first time, yes... The files are somewhat indexed now. You get some kind of idea of what the subject headings might be in the shows, because we had them all online a couple weeks ago without any sort of index headings. And at least you've got something very functional there. Watch the site. We'll be adding features to it as time goes on uh, that will be, you know, part of the show. So I hope you enjoy it. But first, let's, uh, you know... Global warming. This is a big issue. I've been talking about it. Of course, it's not really about the environment. And uh, again, check my check the site out if you want to really uh, get back into some of the arguments I was getting into there. But you know, I call it the global warming cult, and it you know, they're just leading this propaganda campaign to convince us that it's our our fault the Earth is warming, and that the sun and other natural forces can't possibly be responsible for the changing weather well you know they're, they're grasping at it un, very unintellectual and unscientific straws to bolster their this insane viewpoint on the environment now clicking around on my tv the other day and i noticed the weather channel has become particularly offensive in this regard and if it isn't david suzuki on one of his emotional diatribes screaming at us now they're appealing almost directly to mysticism you know, dancing for rain kind of thing. You know, this past week I've been noticing another one of their global warming features in which the wisdom of the ancient Aboriginal natives is being invoked as another reason yet to buy into the global warming religions. There's now a green spin on North American native dances and, and their mystic incantations. And what made the feature notable to me was not, perhaps you could argue about the gross untruth about the actual you know, past relationship of a lot of North American natives to the environment because it was not all peace and harmony with the land, if you read an accurate um, account of it. In fact, there was an article in the National Post recently which demonstrated how the so-called environmental footprint of any person living in sort of primitive means casted a huge footprint compared to someone living in a highly modern or technological Society, But that's not what really caught my attention. What caught my attention was the constant, constant targeting of affluence as the enemy of the environment. The word affluence came up repeatedly as the cause of the problem. Now, this is so wrong, I don't even think it's wrong. Doesn't even, doesn't, it doesn't even get on the wrong scale. Uh, you know, and it's the fact that the Weather Channel is almost completely government-financed, you know, they got through regulation, through licensing, through advertising, and a host of other controls that pretty well ensure that the piper calls the tune, I suppose it shouldn't be surprising that so much, you know, intellectual junk is pouring forth from what should be, I think, an objective information station. I have never yet seen or heard a dissenting voice on the global warming cult aired on the Weather Channel. You just won't hear it. But affluence has nothing whatever to do with pollution or global warming, since, you know, people who are not affluent, you know, people at subsistence level or lower, pollute just as much, if not more, than people who are affluent. If you compare the poor countries of the world with the affluent countries, in terms of their pollution levels and environmental footprints, I mean, the evidence is overwhelming that wealth, not poverty is the only way we can even address such issues as the environment. And it's so overwhelming that, you know, the, these poverty pimps, they just go into denial and go into their religious chanting phase by repetition, convincing themselves that by hurting the affluent, they are somehow helping the environment. You know, it, uh, and it's funny, because it's all about needs versus affluence. You know, it's funny that these people who are so concerned about the environment suddenly don't really care as much about the environment if you're talking about need. You know, they they clearly excuse all pollution and CO2 gases if they're necessary or if people are in need. But if you're affluent, then you've got to cut yourself back to subsistence levels to qualify for pollution tax credits, which will magically give you permission to pollute, you know. It reminds me of the ban on the uh, cosmetic use of pesticides in lawn care chemicals. You know, if you need it, it's okay. Go ahead and use those chemicals. But if you want to use it for something considered beyond subsistence or beyond need, like wanting a beautiful bug-free lawn, well, then you're a sinner. And you must be punished by law and prohibited from extending your needs into desires. I, you know, I have to tell you, this is a, in terms of philosophy, this is quite an evil concept, if you think about it. it it's, it's, it's about envy. It's about greed. It's about hatred. All directed at wealth and at the producers of wealth. And you know, all brought to us by the Green with Envy movement, which, of course, is really red. Lauren Gunter in the March 10th National Post writes, the media snow job on global warming is the headline. And Gunter comments on how little interest most media outlets have in reporting any research that diverges from the alarmist orthodoxy by citing the formation of the non-governmental international panel on climate change uh, announced the week before in New York and reported on the pages of the find- of the Washington Post. Sorry. Uh, quote, the group was unveiled this week in Manhattan at the 2008 International Conference on Climate Change, along with its scientific report claiming that natural factors, the sun, El Ninos, La Ninas, volcanoes, etc., not human sources, are behind global warming. Of course, this evidence has been around for years, and you've heard it here on this show for the past year. The Washington Post points out to readers that many of the participants had ties to conservative politicians, such as former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, and that the conference sponsor, the Heartland Institute, received money from oil companies and healthcare corporations. Now, there's nothing wrong with scrutinizing the motives of people engaged in a dicey debate, he writes. The subjectivity arises from scrutinizing only one side, and always with a preconceived notion of what you're going to find. At last week's Manhattan Climate Conference, delegate after delegate related stories about how they had been denied tenure, shut out of the scientific conferences, and rejected by academic journals because no matter how scrupulous their research, their conclusions disagreed with the prevailing orthodoxy of the climate change Pharisees. I think that's uh, incredibly an important comment to make, that when people do come up with conflicting information that is just rejected out of hand and they won't even look at it. Peter Foster adds his two bits to the whole snow job on global warming in the March 12th National Post editorial headlined The New Road to Serfdom. Now, this one really caught my attention because I almost said this same thing in a totally different way on an earlier show uh, middle of last year when I was talking about, uh, I actually read a, apart from Ayn Rand, that she had written back in the 1960s, where she said, uh, well, the left is now going to turn to the environment and ecology, and here is the strategy they will use, and here are the the panic tactics that they're going to give you. And she described everything from from polar bears to, you know, the the end-of-the-world kind of scenarios with tornadoes and hurricanes. But Foster asks, how did we get into this ridiculous mess? It is all inextricably tied to the remarkable job that the left has done in the past 20 years to rescue itself from the brink of extinction by exploiting environmental concerns. Uh, You know, and I might add, to say nothing of the poor job done by the so-called right in countering the left's propaganda, uh, you know, which, of course, he doesn't talk about, but that's not the subject of this uh, concern. And he continues, quote, That revival started in 1987 with the report of the UN-based Brundtland Commission. Brundtland was packed with representatives of the old left, defined as those who seek state control over capitalist enterprise on the basis that it is both morally suspect and practically unsustainable, or unstable, sorry. The commission played into widespread misconceptions that the world was, quote, running out of resources, that the capital-rich capitalist rich had achieved their wealth at the expense of the poor. However, it's most important new weapon was that of the alleged despoilation of the environment by industrial society. The old slash new left was quick to seize upon the potential of climate change at the Bruntland follow-up at Rio in 1992. Rio was organized by Brundtland Commissioner Maury Strong, a longtime committed socialist who was the strategic mastermind of the new environmental left. From Rio emerged the processes that led to the Kyoto Kyoto Accord. In fact, I talked about all this in excruciating detail when I once hosted a show by Jim Chapman and sat in on that. Uh, The environmental movement has also been astonishingly successful in co-opting education systems and highly skillful at exploiting universal psychological tendencies to social conformity and deference to authority. The suggestion that climate change is primarily a moral problem has been a masterstroke of which the master stroker is Al Gore. Invoking morality is a powerful weapon in shutting off debate. It employs the so-called psychology of taboo to place some claims, for example, that climate change may be natural, beneficial, or practically unstoppable, beyond the pale. Those who promote such notions must therefore be evil or psychologically unbalanced or in the pay of powerful corporations." invoking the authority of science and the democratic value of consensus are, again, both designed to cut off rational analysis. You know, it's a good point. If if, if scientists had to work on consensus and vote on anything, they'd never discover anything. You'd never discover a single law of nature by voting about it. Uh, The new left that emerged via Brundtland, Rio, and Kyoto has thus co-opted a huge coalition of self-interested supporters attracted by the prospect of preening as saviors of the planet. Together, they are threatening to carry the globe down to a new road to serfdom. Which, end quote... Uh, now, regular listeners to this show will again recall when I read that passage from Ayn Rand's, and interestingly, what was it called? The New Left, the anti-industrial revolution, in which she explicitly predicted each step and argument that the left would use on the environment. And she wrote that back in the 1960s and 70s, not in the 1980s. Uh, March 11th, National Post, letter of the day, propaganda, not science behind global warming fears, writes Jan Narvison, professor emeritus of the University of Waterloo. Quote, if anything, Lauren Gunter understates the case about the non-governmental international planet, uh, panel on climate change report, which he says I have seen and read carefully. This important document makes damning criticisms of the politically correct view of global warming, and the arguments are powerful. Example, the last eight years show no warming trend and last year was colder than the 20th century average. The historical record has been partly ignored and partly just warped by the global warming enthusiasts. And the methods used by the defenders of the politically correct view are not science, but pure propaganda. Governments the world over, not the least of them our own, are wasting our money and worsening our lives on the basis of distorted and largely refuted speculations about the climate. It's time to stop this nonsense, he writes. Now, if you want to see some clear examples of, of the nonsense, the snow job on climate change in action, as Lauren Gunter would put it, those of us living in London, I think, have a particularly lethal dose of this poisonous environmental propaganda being spewed out to us daily in the pages of the London Free Press. Have you ever seen their, their Green Planet series? They run that weekly. Uh, quote, there are limits to how many human beings Mother Earth can sustain reads the nonsensical headline of this series uh, on March 16th. The article is mostly concerned with overpopulation, which, again, I refuted every argument made on a previous show. But that doesn't seem to stop the environmentally handicapped crusaders still trying to revive all those Malthusian theories, which, by the way, have never once been proven to be right. Quotes writer Vivian Song in her article, quote, It's a philosophy, bingo, resurrected from the coal-fired ashes of the 70s. Now, I want to tell you folks, philosophies do not come out of coal burning, okay? That's not how philosophies are born. (laughs) Philosophies are based on ideas, okay? But nevertheless, it's a philosophy resurrected from the coal-fired ashes of the 70s when environmental groups started sounding the alarm about uncurbed population growth and its impact on the planet's resources. They were crusaders of the zero population growth movement, asking couples to reconsider how their baby-making plan means one more mouth to feed for an overworked Mother Earth. Having children is selfish, environmentalists say. And they're correct, having children is selfish, but you know what they're trying to tell you is selfishness is bad. No, it's not. If you think having children is bad, then you have to say ch- being selfish is bad. Uh, driven by the egotistical need to preserve the genetic line at the expense of the planet. In other words, what they're telling us is dirt is more important than people, okay? They think that people are, you know, we have this genetic need to, to meet this genetic thing. And if, that, if that were true, then it would be natural, wouldn't it? It would be part of nature. And why, why be against that? But it's, that's not what they're opposed to, of course. But she then cites Professor of Economics David Foote, author of Boom, Bust, and Echo, who pretty well destroyed every bit of credibility he might have had by arguing, and this is again uh, Vivian Song writing, quote, while it would be easy to blame developing countries where uneducated women give birth to multiple children, footnotes to hypocrisy. Developed countries have already bred and raped their lands of resources, he said. And I'm sitting there scratching my head. Has he ever looked out the window lately? What is he talking about? Uh, you know, breeding and, and raping the land. is it, unbelievable language. It would be hollow criticism, she writes, to pontificate about how the world's poorest countries are producing too many dependents when it is the industrial countries that stole their share of food and energy, end quote. Now, you know, I read something like that, and I just have to pause to reflect on just how stupid, outrageous, immoral, it's just outrageous that this claim is. It's based on an ignorance that rivals the belief in a flat-earth society. I just can't believe it. Uh, You know, if you believe in this kind of crap, that's dangerous and self-destructive. It's economically backwards. It's, It's socially suicidal. Just think about it. But there's more. Quote, The rich buy, the rich, remember, buy and drive bigger cars and are more likely to fly. Population growth is terrible for the environment itself, but there are lots of other things like technology, culture, and wealth that play a role. Now, I've never ever heard that before. The technology, culture and wealth are bad for the environment. In fact, I've always heard the opposite. But that's what David Foote says, who really put his foot in his mouth with that one. You know, again, the contempt for wealth, for capitalism, for freedom and anything that is valuable or virtuous to humanity. Talk about getting everything exactly 100% wrong. You know, it's, it's the entire opposite of reality. Uh, I jokingly said David Foote has single-handedly given the term environmental footprint an entirely new meaning. And finally, climate change could threaten our health, reads a front-page story in the London Free Press March 11th. And in a purely speculative piece, Cheryl Ublecker of the Canadian Press reports, quote, In an article in today's issue of the Canadian Medical Association Journal, infectious disease specialists predict global warming will increase the risk of infectious disease by expanding the geographic ranges of species known to carry diseases that jump from animals to humans. Dr. David Fishman, a scientist at the Hospital for Sick Children Research Institute in Toronto, said it is difficult to specify a time frame for such a blooming or infectious pathogens, but suggested such changes could occur during the next several decades. We're not trying to predict the future, Fishman said, right after he predicted it. What we're saying is that there's a real possibility. Hmm. Human beings are just one group of organisms that live in a really complicated ecosystem and uh, blah, 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 and on it goes, okay? Now, human beings are not, again just one group of organisms subject willy-nilly to the laws of nature. It's precisely because human beings are the only beings capable of reason and understanding and of adapting nature to man rather than the reverse that these predicted outcomes are extraordinarily unlikely, particularly in countries where people have their right to use their minds to solve their own problems. Uh, You know... I've, I've heard other philosophers say this, and the more I w- hear these arguments, I, I really have to agree with them. You know, make no mistake, it's a fundamental hatred of mankind himself, itself that's a major motivator behind global warming believers. You can see it everywhere in their ideal, ideological outlook on life. You know, once again, we see another call to support, you know, next week's on Saturday, March 29th, Earth Hour. You, know, you see that in the pages of the London Free Press by Greg Van Morsel on March 14th. Again, another issue I covered in detail on a past show, referring to the endarkenment of society being foisted upon us by governments at every level, you know, both literally and symbolically. Quote, Londoners are being asked by City Hall to plunge themselves into darkness for an hour March 20th, snapping off unneeded, and there's that word again, unneeded, see? It has to be an unneeded light. If if it's it's for pleasure and you don't need it, well, then then it's an evil light. You have to turn that one off. It's all about your, your motivation and your needs, right? Uh, <laughs> in a show of environmental solidarity with millions worldwide, well, it sounds like a union movement if I've ever heard one, uh, Van Mersel's editorial goes on to pontificate about how carbon dioxide is evil. And he also talks about totally unrelated environmental issues like London sewage polluting the lakes, and the city of London being too big geographically, which surprised me. Quote, this is a city, after all, it squanders land, all out of proportion to its size, its girth occupying the same terrain as Canada's largest city, with only a fraction of its people, end quote. That's why I have to turn my lights off on Saturday? Because of the size of the city? (laughs) And, of course, landfill sites are also evil, you know, etc., etc., ad infinitum. So flick off your lights on March 29th, says Gillespie, because after all, symbolism can be a powerful agent of change, but only if it reflects public will. End quote. Now, of course, public will means government will, you won't. <laughs> I think that the London Free Press should be given an editorial and news reporting award for environmental terrorism and fear and, mis- and misinformation. Uh, you know, personally, I find all this propaganda stuff on the environment very offensive. It's intellectually insulting. I, I'm sorry. I know a lot of you feel the same way, but you feel a bit maybe intimidated and reluctant to express your disagreement, which is exactly how the propagandists want you to feel. I just would advise you don't let that stop you because what they want is to have the authority over you to make you bend to their way of thinking, and don't let that happen. It's the old statement, you know, question authority before authority questions you. And you have to remember, science and logic uh, do not matter to environmentalists. They've seized the moral high ground on the issue, and that's why they control it. So that if you want to defeat them in any sense, to, to resist the, the whole ideology, you have to do it on that level, on the moral level. And you have to expose what they are and reveal what we are. Okay, we've got a caller calling in. Let's have the caller on. Hello, caller. Can't hear anyone today, Sarah. Hello? Oh, there you are. Okay, we got you. Go ahead. Is he still there? Are we having a technical difficulty? Okay. Hi. Yeah, hi. Can you hear me?
0: Uh, yeah, Bob. This is Paul Colin Paul oh, Lambert I'm in Sweden. Oh, how? Calling from Sweden? Yeah, how are you do?
3: Not too I'm, bad.
0: <laughs> I'm just listening to, uh, of course, the program talking about uh, global warming, and uh, it's my contention really, even after what I've seen all over the world, that this is really just another elaborate scheme at wealth redistribution.
3: distribution. What is that? Um,
0: Oh, oh, yeah, it is. I mean, if uh, you can just share what happens over here at the airports now, Uh, over here in Europe especially, there are children. Now, this this is something that's arranged by the newspapers here in Europe. There are children of 10, 11 years old. They're walking around the the airports with these, like, church robes, these, like, choir robes, these white robes, very cultish-looking, really, and they're going up to people who are about to uh, take trips on airplanes, and they're trying to talk them out of uh, taking their flights. And, uh, Failing that, what they do is they ask where these people are going, and then they calculate just how much carbon dioxide pollution their particular trip would go. And then after they calculate that, they decide uh, how, much, uh, how much money they should, co- they should pay, and they actually get some people out of guilt to pay these kids money. And you ask, what are you going to do with uh, this money that they get? And uh, they say, well, they're going to buy solar-powered ovens to cook food in India. So by the time you go through this old rigmarole and the cult and then yeah. involving children, it really is just to get- a way to get-, get some money for someone else's cause.
3: It's all yeah. about money, isn't it? Uh, you know, it's yeah. really it's really funny here in another one of our papers, Paul, we in the Londoner, you know, they're suggesting what they want people to do. These are city hall suggestions of what people should do when they turn off their lights next week Saturday. Some suggestions suggest, well, you have a candlelit dinner with for your party, you know, have a friends and family, or you read ghost stories in the dark, or you play hide and seek with your children in the dark. You know, have you ever heard anything that silly government giving people advice of how to spend their leisure time? Unbelievable. Thanks for calling, Hello? Paul. No, thanks a lot, Paul. Okay. Take okay. All the way from Sweden. And that was Paul Lambert, by the way, who actually was a guest on this show uh, last year when he talked a, a lot about what life was like in Sweden. That's it for this section. When we come back after this break, we will be switching to another subject, and I think this one's on... War protesting would we'll be back right after this.
1: Reducing greenhouse gas emissions is within our reach. Just flick off. Turn off your lights. Power down your computer and don't idle your car. Sticking it to global warming has never been so easy.
0: So just flick off. Flick off. Flick off.
1: I love Canada, our little bilingual country. We were just over in uh, Kosovo helping out the Americans. Brought over all our military strength. (laughs) Three ships, two tanks, and Kretchen's Eskimo carving. (laughs) We just don't have what all the other countries have, right? They have, like, their SDMs and their ICBMs, which I'm not even sure what those letters stand for. But they sound good. When you think about it, that's all you really need are acronyms that sound threatening. I think Canada. We should just make something up. Just tell all the other countries. This year we spent over 40 billion dollars on our new BAAs. A's, <laughs> and we will be the only ones to know it stands for bow and arrows. Just for our little secret. <laughs> uh, we don't need anything though, because we have uh, we have the Americans sharing our border. If anyone ever attacked Canada, the Americans would jump in and help us out right away. Well, we're counting on it. <laughs> we're like the annoying little brother of the US. Before they can attack anyone, they have to tell the United Nations. Right? So the United Nations is kind of like the mother. You know, the US is like, Mom, we're going to war. The UN's like, okay, but you have to take Canada with you.
3: Well, Mom, we are at war, aren't we? Welcome back. It's just right on CHRW 94.9 FM. We'll be with you from now till noon. 519-661-3600 is the number to call if you want to call in. Three articles, all in the London Free Press within a day of each other, caught my attention for a number of unrelated reasons, really. But there is a common theme. March 16 and seventeen. 2008, Protesters speak out against Afghan mission, and protesters target Afghan war were the two headlines uh, relating to Canadian protests organized against Canada's efforts in Afghanistan. Quote, in Toronto, thousands of protesters filled streets across the country on Saturday, March 15th, to speak out against Canada's military mission in Afghanistan, and to mark the upcoming five-year anniversary of the start of the war in Iraq, which just passed uh, yesterday. And uh, what's interesting, that that is a war that we're not even officially involved in. But they protested it nonetheless. Rallies were organized in 20 communities nationwide f- in a call for the federal government to recall its troops from Afghanistan and instead adopt a peacekeeping role. I'd like to know how they're going to do that after they recall the troops. Like, You're going to have a peacekeeping role without troops? Anyways, which protesters said is Canada's true calling? This is another one of those... Oh, smug myths we have about ourselves. Federal New Democratic leader Jack Layton attended the protest, notes the the article, and in the photo above it is a protester holding a sign which reads elect anti, an anti-war government, end quote. The second article reports that Darius Murashi, president of the Fanshawe College Social, Social Justice Club and an organizer of a protest in Victoria Park on Sunday following the Saturday march, is optimistic but not unrealistic quote I don't think just peaceful protesting is going to stop everything he said Lynn Moise who attended the the uh, protest with her father and boyfriend heard about the protest on the radio and decided to attend we're against the war she said we figure in 2008 there's got to be a better way to solve problems end quote now of course you'll never see even one just one suggestion of what would be a better way to negotiate with people who are trying to kill you and destroy everything that you're trying to build. Uh, You know, war is not the answer, reads a sign on the picture accompanying that article, and which also again notes, among those speaking were Irene Matheson, NDP MP for London Fanshawe. So, gee, I wonder who's behind all of these anti- war protests. Isn't it interesting that it always seems to be the left? I wonder why. Now, in stark contrast to this losing mentality we see exhibited at the so-called anti-war protests and i did a whole show on that subject too was the following third article appearing the same day with the headline quote most americans oblivious to iraq war which was penned by bradley brooks for the associated press quote James Carafano, a military analyst with the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank, said, The decline in violence since 30,000 troops were sent to Iraq last summer has been important in the public eye. Americans are not casualty-averse. They are failure-averse, he said. That is why you've seen public support rebound after it was clear that the surge was working. The number killed in Iraq is far less than in other modern American wars in Vietnam the U.S. lost on average about 4,850 troops a year from 1963 to 75. Now, I did some arithmetic there. That's about 13 years, if you use that figure, it works out to 63,050 people. In the Korean War, from 50 to 53, the U.S. lost about 12,300 soldiers a year. Now, that was for about four years. So you take that, you're looking at around 49,200 people, 50,000 people. Soldiers and analysts say the impact of the deaths in Iraq has been lost on many Americans who have no personal connection to the war. It's still a war that hasn't involved a draft, very important, or an increase in taxes, said John Alterman, who has the Middle East program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. This is a war that most Americans continue to feel they don't have to make sacrifices for, end quote. You remember on uh, the night of uh, 9-11 attack, that's one thing that George Bush said to everyone. He says, we're going to run this war, so you know, we're not asking Americans to make a sacrifice, which means draft and all sorts of uh, non-consensual issues. Carafino said that the public's seeming indifference to casualty figures is the rule, not the exception for most wars that America has been in. Meanwhile, back here in Canada, our casualty figures are creating hysteria in the media, even though they're still well under 100, not for one year, but for the whole five years we've been there. And we include now in our reported stats the deaths of soldiers in Afghanistan that have nothing to do with combat duties, like the poor fellow they found dead in his bed last week, and many others killed by misfortune or accidents unrelated directly to the combat. Each one of those kinds of deaths is being added to the total, total war casualty figures as well. And that's what we're doing here. And, of course, every time one comes back, uh, the left gets in its protest wagon and starts saying, we got to pull out. It, it's just embarrassing. The people protesting these wars just have no answers, okay? Uh, now, here's the question. How long should we stay in Afghanistan? And how long should the U.S. stay in Iraq? I was actually asked those questions on Jim Chapman's show uh, when was it? The week after they invaded Iraq. And my answer to Jim at the time was, we'll be there for a 100 years, Jim. We're still in Europe. We're still in all the other countries that we've ever engaged in a war. Not necessarily in combat duty, but we're, we're, we're there. We're there for life. Because the answer is you stay there until the job is done, which requires two things. One, being clear on your objective and when it's been achieved. And two, getting the job done with the proper resources and the proper time frame. Now, if the protesters are really concerned with ending violence and bringing peace to those areas of the world, maybe they should be volunteering for combat duty, eh? And advocating that more troops be sent to those areas, just like the U.S. did, which reported success at reducing the violence. Isn't that funny? You send people with guns over there, and the violence goes down. How do the protesters explain that? You know, while Americans are generally reported to be oblivious to the war in Iraq here in Canada, our protesters choose to be oblivious to reality and to reason. They live by a new mantra. It's called, See no good, hear no good, do no good. And as always, as I've always said, they remain on the side of the bullies, uh, the nations who rule by force. That's about all I've got to say on them today. And when we come back, we'll be talking about people before profits, the economy, unions, cheap labor, and all the rest. We'll be back right after this non-commercial break. Canada is a diverse nation. But I found that all Canadians everywhere, whether they
1: be French, English, or native, are all united in their simple pride at not being Americans. (laughs) The The only major difference between Canadians and Americans, I think, is that an American will live his entire life and never once think to himself, damn those arrogant canadians (laughs) we have other questions what do you do
3: for example with all of the money you don't have to spend on your military (laughs) americans spend
1: half a trillion dollars a year on our military half our taxes
3: your taxes must be so low can you sell your message if it turns out that a majority of Ontarians are socialists at heart?
4: Well, uh, the the thing about socialism is it tends to implode. We're we're up to our eyes in debt. There's no more room for wiggling, and this is just the last gasping breath in canada of what we saw in the, a more radicalized socialism in, in the soviet union
0: well a lot of people would listen to you say that though paul and say that maybe you're overstating the case a little bit that we don't see the signs of crumbling that we saw there that we've got right. uh, we have a healthy gdp or, or, or gross provincial product if you will that uh, economically Ontario is still
4: fairly sound that yes we're heavily taxed but we get a lot back for our tax dollars a lot of it may be wasted but we still we, we get a lot of value. I mean, A lot of people look at the situation and believe that. Yeah. How, how, how are you going to convince them? This is what fascinates me about your party. You guys yeah. are also confident that you can get this message across. How are you going to convince people of this? Well luckily the economy is on our side. You can't fool the economy. In the short term I can tell you as an employment lawyer that we are very quickly uh, because of the low dollar finding most of our significant factories, et cetera, being bought out, uh, really we're being turned into more of a branch plant economy. The reason that we have this perception that we're successful is because the Americans need to have cheap labor. Uh, We think we're being paid the same amount, but that's only because our dollars worth 60% of what the American dollars were. We're actually uh, uh, cheap labor. And uh, when we cease to uh, be a palatable place in which to set up uh, plants, and we're seeing that more and more, uh, the Americans will pull out, and then we'll realize just how poor we are. We are we are successful in Ontario despite our socialism, not because of it. And uh, more, more rules, I mean, if you look the at liberal, the Liberal handbook there, you'll find the word ban in there or regulate uh, more than you'll see anything along the lines of allow or permit.
3: Welcome back. Uh, there's was a familiar voice you might not have heard for a while. That, of course, was Jim Chapman in conversation with Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever five years ago on Jim's cable show on Rogers. And it was interesting, of course, you probably figured when they were talking about the low dollar that that didn't kind of make sense. But uh, I have to say that everything Paul said there is really proven to be the case. Paul, of course, is also an employment lawyer who tells me about the horror stories around the Oshawa area all the time. Just people are losing their jobs all over the place. And the reason I bring this up is because... I caught a letter to the editor, you know, sometimes what people just have to put in the paper can get me going on something. Time to put Canadian jobs above free trade reads the heading above James de Camara's letter to the editor, London Free Press, March 17th. It caught my eye because I consider it sort of an oxymoronic statement, sort of like saying, put eggs before chickens, or or arguing, no, no, put chickens before eggs, you know. (laughs) Have we not lost enough jobs yet, asks the writer. And he continues by saying, quote, People say, well, there's nothing I can do. Yes, there is. Call your local MP and let him know how we need to make free trade fair for all countries or abolish it. We cannot compete with these impoverished countries labor-wise unless we ourselves want to become an impoverished country. I, I, I just have to tell you, folks, I find it stunning that anyone can rationally say that we, a rich nation, cannot compete with an impoverished country. What, 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 it, what kind of thinking is that? It doesn't even make sense. But nevertheless, he goes on to say, another thing we can do is stop buying all these foreign products. Now, I wonder if he'd like it if all the other countries Canada trades with would start talking the same way. You know, you can see where that's going. But he, he, here's his argument. You may think, at the time, that you're saving a couple of dollars, but really, how much do you save when it costs you your job? In my opinion, the Conservatives and Brian Mulroney messed up this country with unfair free trade, and again, the Conservative Stephen Harper wants to mess things up even further by wanting to bring in unfair free trade with Korea. This government needs to stop trying to play a role of the hero in other countries and concentrate on the problems in our country. Now, followed to its logical conclusion, what this writer is suggesting would wreak immeasurable havoc with the Canadian economy and put even more Canadians at work. This is certainly a message we've been hearing from union people and, you know, like Buzz Hargrove lately. So I want to make a couple of points clear here. first one is this. Let's be cognizant of one thing. The Canadian economy produces way more products and services than Canadians themselves could possibly consume. Canada supplies more oil and gas to the U.S. than the Mideast does. Did you know that? If we only produced ga- gas and oil for the Canadian market, which is what abolishing free trade would mean in, in its purest sense then we'd have to shut down the refineries and put a lot of people out of work. Or on the other hand, Canada does not grow enough bananas to meet the current Canadian levels of banana consumption, and if we decided to grow our bananas here, which would be technically possible with greenhouses and applied technology, but the price of bananas would get so high that few would be able to afford homegrown bananas, which in turn would make the initial investment in banana-growing technology kind of a losing proposition from the outset. So the old chicken-or-the-egg theory raises its ugly head again. And by the way, it is unfair that Canada should have all that oil and gas. And it is unfair that Venezuela and Brazil and other countries like that have all the bananas, in addition to having some of their own gas and oil. And yes, it's unfair that some countries have cheaper wage pools than Canada does. And it's unfair that some countries prevent their citizens from buying our stuff. But just like the bananas and the oil, that doesn't mean a thing when it comes to knowing what's always best for the prosperity and well-being of the nation in the aggregate, not for some special interest group or single, uh, single group. You know, free trade is always the way to go, unilaterally. I, I believe that. And free trade means no government intervention in economic choices that people make. You know, if we had the courage, Canada should lift all its barriers to all goods and services without any necessity of considering whether the un- other countries exhibit the same courage. We can't control what's going on in most of those countries. We can influence and, and you know, lobby them and stuff, but uh, as the late economist Milton Friedman so astutely demonstrated in his Free to Choose series, You know, it won't take long for the other countries who impose trade barriers or subsidize their products, you know, for their citizens to eventually realize that they're paying us to buy their stuff, which is something that also occurs when governments subsidize. And uh, so it's a losing thing for them, but a profit to the particular industry that's getting help from the general public. Politicians and union leaders hate free trade because free trade diminishes their power to interfere with the economy. But remember, free trade means free from government in a citizen's decision regarding what he or she will buy and from where and from whom they're buying it from. And now the people being hurt by trade barriers are always the ones in the country that's imposing the trade barrier. Forcing people to buy only locally means that the people and companies they're forced to buy from have some kind of rights that the rest of us don't have. And you want to talk about inequality and unfairness? That's about the best way I can describe it. Canadians weren't too concerned with free trade back when the dollar was setting new lows in relationship to the U.S. dollar, almost dropping to half at one point. But all this meant was that we were cheap labor, just like Paul said at the beginning. We were just giving it away and, being, and thinking, oh, yeah, we're doing so good. And now the piper's come and call the tune, eh? The second big principle I think that we have to be cognizant of is that labor is dependent on capital, for its productive competitiveness. Without tools and machinery, technology and energy, and most importantly money, in the form of capital investment, every person's labor has sort of an equal value, really, almost close to nil, since a person alone without any capital would be hard-pressed in nature to provide even for himself and his family, let alone produce for other people. I mean, how much could you do if you just had a shovel? And that would be a tool too, wouldn't it? Capitalism, or sorry, capital is the key to all increases in the standard of living, and that's why the word capital is in the word capitalism. It's truly a capital system in every sense of the word. I mean, the whole point of living in a free capitalistic nation is to have the right and ability to accumulate wealth without fear of having it confiscated from governments. And unfortunately, that's been the history of what most nations to date have done most nations practice various various forms of socialism and collectivism and fascism, which is all out to destroy wealth and capital. And socialism destroys wealth and capital by redistributing it for consumption, which artificially, meaning by force, increases consumer demand, which restricts supply, and then there goes that process again. The irony of this, of course, is that labor as a political group always flocks to unions and organized labor monopolies and to political parties who are all actively working to destroy everything that real laborers need to get ahead in life, rather than just tread water or fall behind, you know, by working harder and getting less in return. And that's the road to serfdom and and that Canada's been on that road for quite a while. Now, The third great principle, I guess, is the sheer reasonability of free trade. It's both logical and moral, and it's necessary, but that doesn't define anything about it. Uh, If you want to see the logic of the ideas, just look at the foolishness of the opposite. For example, if it's logical to restrict free trade, you know, tariffs and prohibitions, taxes and licensing between nations and between provinces, which we still do, unfortunately then why not restrict trade between cities and between municipalities, you know, and make them all self-sufficient? And for that matter, restrict trade between individuals. And then you could be completely self-sufficient, you know. Now, if that sounds stupid to you, you're right, it is. But that's exactly the argument constantly put forth by union leaders, politicians, and the letter writer to the free press. You know, free trade is always to the benefit of consumers, business, and labor alike. You know, underground and black markets aside, you either have free trade, forced trade, or no trade. And only political interests are ever in favor of trade restrictions, and that's basically not in anyone's interest. Now, the upcoming clip that you're going to hear goes back actually 10 years, and uh, it includes myself. Labour leader Sid Ryan and host uh, Rhonda London on the Rhonda London show way back in April 21st, 1999 on the CTS network in, uh, in, it comes actually out of Burlington. So give a listen to this and then we'll be back after this break.
0: Uh, community.
2: Well, I'm going to stop you there and thank you for your phone call because he brings up an interesting point. In this era where we we're seeing union contracts negotiated for two, zero and two, does it make sense to be paying two percent of everything that you make in union dues? Yeah, okay, well first up, off, to two percent. Okay, yeah, up say. to two percent because an a lot of locals don't uh, to charge two uh, percent. Well, What you have to look at is, is what are the benefits you've got in your collective agreement. It isn't necessarily what did you negotiate today. Mm-hmm. Y- collective agreements are built over a period of time, maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 years. You've got to look at do you have a good pension plan, do you have job security, do you have seniority, do you have uh, good wages, better wages than you would in the private sector. Obviously you have better wages because we're hearing $8, $9, $10 an hour is the norm in the private sector that's not the norm in the unionized sector. Um, and so all of those benefits come as a package and that's what you have to take a look at and say, okay, what is this 2% Per week or per month that I'm paying into my union, what is it worth to me at the end of the day? If I pay $300 per year in union dues, um, do I get better than $300 per year back? Um, over those workers in the private sector? And the obviously answer to that is, surely you do. You've got better pensions, benefits and wages. You don't get them in the private sector. And so you get, you get that 2% is worth, is worth thousands of dollars to you in your back pocket. And yeah, so you, so you pay higher taxes. But believe well, me, like, like you, somebody would rather be taking home $35,000 per year and pay the taxes on it than be we taking well, home no, $15,000 a, thousand sec dollars here. a hang year. On a
3: sec here. You know, if you wanted to do something useful as a union leader, you know what you could be doing for the labor in this province and in this country? Fighting for lower taxes. Fight for a higher uh, tax exemption rate. It shouldn't be like, you know, your minimum you shouldn't be paying taxes on anything you make before $20,000 a year. But the problem is the kinds of issues that unions support are the kinds of issues that governments have to tax your okay. labor for. Okay, that's, that's why they're
2: paying 52%. Okay, so let's talk about taxes. So Mike Harris came in in the last election supported by uh, by people like you saying, "Lord" Lower, 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 lower taxes. So I what ran said, against Mike I said cares. people okay. like you who, well, who no. advocate lower taxes. So as a result of those taxes, he had to borrow four billion dollars, by the way, to give people a tax break. Having borrowed that money, he then proceeded to take eight hundred million dollars out of hospitals, which has now basically crippled our health care system. He took education one point five billion you dollars out of education, which he's crippled the education system. Children had five hundred thousand children in this province yeah, had their benefits it. cut by twenty two percent. You can't pull the plug on services without opening them up to market. Of young children in this province by the welfare cuts. All of that to pay for your tax breaks. You want me to go out and say, "Give us more of this, Mike." Well, first close of all, down more of our hospitals. Of all, fee-
3: leave, leave more lower, children without lower, any food on the table. Lower ironically. Think so create more revenue for the government, as the Harris government has discovered. So why is the health care system yeah. messed up? Because the health care system run by the government and the education system oh, run by like the, the government. that's a simplistic answer. They should be both. Um, that's, should.
2: that's a simplistic answer. It's been run by the government the past they 50 years, both. and we haven't seen hospitals closing, and we haven't seen emergency departments. Well, it department, took 50 years uh, for the credit to the card to run out. That's we're, all we're, have to, we're going to have sure. to stop it there. I don't think we're going to settle this debate today at oh. any rate. Oh, yeah. Robert Metz, Sid <laughs> Ryan, our time is gone, but thank you Great. both for joining us today on the show. You both brought up some really interesting points. <laughs> and they'll go away.
1: You like Chrétien? Jean, The Honorable, the Right Honorable Jean Kretchen. Right. Are you happy that he was uh, re-elected? Uh, for a second, I love p- people again. We don't care who the prime minister is again. You know why, don't you? Because we live in the best country in the whole world, and and we know that the politicians only screw things up. So our opinion after an election, we're like, oh, you won, hey, congratulations. Go in the office if you want, just don't touch nothing. Please, just read for a couple of years, and we'll send the next lion bastard in to replace you. How about that? I know it's sad. But...
3: Pretty much how it is out there. Uh, i got to tell you about that uh, debate I had with Sid Ryan. It's one of the funniest things I ever went through because we were just in a shouting match for about an hour straight. He just kept talking over anybody and anything. And uh, I started catching on about halfway through. That that was the only way to get a word in edgewise. But uh, that was also done during uh, in the middle of a Toronto transit strike, which is one of the reasons they called me into Toronto to, dis- to discuss the issue. Uh, you're listening to Just Right here on CHRW 94.9 FM. Got a few minutes left here just to say a few brief things. Uh, first of all, John Tory, I just want to get this past me before I go on to the next one. I actually heard a news story over the past week that reported that uh, PC leader John Tory actually criticized McGuinty for failing to lower taxes. Can you imagine that? Uh, specifically uh, business and corporate taxes in this case. And uh, I'm thinking, wow, that's something almost sounds a little bit Tory. Now, I don't for a moment believe he'd actually lower taxes for anyone, but that's not important. He's at least saying what some of his past conservative constituency wants to hear. And he knows they'll stay loyal to him, even if he never, never delivers on that promise. It's it's funny because, you know, I've watched these fiscal and social conservatives. They're so blindly loyal to any party with the word conservative in it somewhere, regardless of whether or not there's anything remotely conservative in the party policies and philosophies, which basically, you know, change with each a passing wind. And boy, do politicians pass a lot of wind, let me tell you. It changes with every, every breeze. Uh, lowering taxes is something that uh, Tory adamantly refused to even say, let alone commit to, Uh, During the last election, I remember Steve Pakin on TVO catching him in a very embarrassing moment when he simply couldn't allow himself to even say the words lower taxes. So, you know, I'm saying don't read his lips, read his mind. Uh, This is the first evidence I've heard of Tory's new, you know, commitment to traditional conservative values, which I explained over the past few weeks is kind of a false front being used to disguise all those flaming red Tories who actually run the party. Tax and spend, that's the fundamental political policy of all the major parties, and that's about all i got to say on that. Now, if you've seen all the excitement in the past week, and I was involved in it indirectly because I'm a tenant in the City of London, and I got one of these notices telling me my rent's going to go up by 250 bucks a year, roughly a little over $20 a month or something like that, because of this move by the city to want to, uh, quote, license landlords. Of course, it's not a landlord licensing thing. They're really licensing properties. You get a mixture. Every media calls it something else. It's really a property tax without being called a property tax. And it's really about taxing tenants in the end because it doesn't serve any other purpose as a license. And I got to tell you, I was totally surprised when I, I, I'm opposed to the licensing of landlords, even if it was five bucks a year. But when I found out that this is what it's going to be, like my building alone is worth about 10 grand on this license. And, uh, you know, it's it's sort of going to operate like a business improvement area, you know, the association where the members pay and the politicians get to control everything. In this case, the tenants pay and the politicians control, landlords caught in the middle. Uh, I think uh, licensing landlords opens the door to more public housing and government spending, really. Uh, What are the real issues here? First of all, let's be clear on something. Ownership of anything includes the right to lend it, to lease it, to sell it, or to rent it. And that includes your mind, your body, and your time, and therefore your property, because those are the consequences of applying your mind, body, and time to creating anything or acquiring anything. So when somebody is licensing you to use something that is rightfully yours, they're claiming ownership to it. They're claiming control of it. And to the extent that they do control it, since it's a private interest being controlled by Public by government—that is called by definition. I'm not trying to panic anyone. Anyway, that's fascist, okay? As opposed to socialist, which is ownership and control. That's the only thing that separates the two. Uh, secondly, having to go to a third-party government for permission—you know—I think it's just morally obscene to, to, to. If I had to, it's like going to the government to ask for permission to breathe. And of course, the real problem is a lack of municipal enforcement of current bylaws and, and laws that they, they have in, already in place. Uh, Judy Bryant, chair of the committee, looking into this, says, we're trying to target illegal apartments, so why not do so? Enforce them, you know? What's the problem here? Uh, you know, I remember all the horror stories I was subject to when I was defending a local landlord here before a human rights tribunal. Horror stories about how difficult it was and is for our landlords to have property bylaws and tenant infringements enforced by the authorities. Joe Hoffer, legal counsel to the London Property Management Association, said on the radio the other day, uh, at, the, at the end of the meeting they had at Centennial Hall, he says, uh, quote, Ironically, Gina Barber stood up at the end of the meeting and said, we've listened to you, and then said, we're going to go back to staff and we'll be coming forward with a licensing bylaw that has more definition to it, which was astounding considering that only four or 40 pe- speakers supported it. Everyone else condemned it. So I don't think they're listening, and we're going to have to keep making efforts to make sure they'll listen and understand the implication for tenants if they go ahead with this licensing by law, um, says Hoffer. Now that's exactly how it was at Centennial Hall when council was getting ready to ban smoking in bars and restaurants. I remember that because I gave a speech there. The vast majority of the crowd in attendance was totally opposed to council's interferences, but they lost their case anyway. And that's exactly how it was, back in the days when Gord Hume wanted London to host the 1991 Pan Am Games at $110 million in taxes, uh, when never less than 80% of Londoners in any poll, given at any time, even on sports shows, were ever in favour of it. So thanks to Mark Emery and myself, who formed the No Tax for Pan Am Committee, we won that case, and Londoners were spared the misery of higher taxes, but only for a short time, unfortunately. So I can hardly wait to hear what the upcoming definition of a license will include when they come up with that one. You know, just for the record, the legal definition of a license reads as follows. I have a legal dictionary, quote, A grant or permission, a power or authority given to another to do some lawful act. It may be written or verbal. When written, the paper containing the authority is called a license, end quote. And the regular non-legal dictionary, this is really interesting, defines a license as... There's four definitions here. One, an official document giving permission to engage in a specified activity, perform a specified act, etc. That certainly matches the legal one. Now here's two, three, and four. Two, unrestrained liberty of action. Three, abuse of freedom or privilege, laxity. Four, deviation from or relaxation of established rules or standards, especially for artistic effect as is, you know, you hear the word used, poetic license, okay? So, you know, and then you often hear the, fra- the phrase, you know, uh, no, we're in favor of freedom, not license, when in fact what's implied by license is this unrestrained freedom, whereas freedom is sort of naturally restrained. So I predict that City Council will come back with a new license definition that will be, according to these definitions, deviant, will bend all the rules and standards, will give city council unrestrained liberty of action and will amount to abuse of its privilege. And all of those things will fit into the definition of license. And of course, what is it really? It will really be a tax. And what's to stop them from licensing homeowners and business owners, you know? Not a thing. So... That's pretty much all I have to say on that subject. I think we're running out of time. are we here, Sarah? I'm getting the signal from Sarah there. And uh, that'll be it for today. Boy, I can't believe it. I got through most of the material. So join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. Take care.
1: color, black and white. Under the everything will be. <laughs> you know when you go to a restaurant on the weekends, it gets busy, so they got to start a waiting list, they start calling out names, they say like, Dufresne, party of two, table ready for Dufresne, party of two, and if no one answers, they'll say the name again, Dufresne, party of two. But then if no one answers, they'll just go right on to the next name, Bush, party of three. Yeah, but what happened to the Dufresnes? No one seems to care. <laughs> Who can eat at a time like this? people are missing you people are selfish the Dufresnes are in someone's trunk right now with duct tape over their mouth and they're hungry that's a triple whammy we need help Bush search party of three you can eat once you find the Dufresnes